Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Elementary Teachers Union has filed a labor relations complaint against the Ontario government over its scrapping of the hiring rule. And after backlash, the Hamilton Public Board says that additional pay given to administrators was to compensate for overtime hours. It was not a bonus. Alex Johnson, the chair of the board, is going to join us. The Ontario government expected to commit four hours of direct care in long-term care facilities, something advocates have been asking for for years now. And advocates are suggesting that the CERB savings should be invested into social supports. We'll give you some of those details. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Since the uh, COVID protocol has been established by the uh, Ford government, it has been a rather acrimonious relationship uh, between the government, especially with the government's education minister and uh, the teachers' unions. Uh, they're very concerned and upset about them, especially an announcement that the education minister made a couple of weeks ago. Global's Tina Trujani has the details. Clearly, the status quo in this province is not working. And with that, Minister Stephen Lecce has announced the province is tackling a controversial rule which favours supply teachers who've been around the longest when it comes to hiring for new long-term and full-time positions. Regulation 274 is being revoked. Moving forward, teacher hiring in Ontario will now be dictated by merit diversity and the unique needs of schools and communities within our province over seniority. For the last few years, Regulation 274 has given preference to the five qualified teachers who've been on the supply list for the longest amount of time, but he says that's outdated and doesn't ensure students get the best education or representation. Lecce says scrapping this will give equal opportunity to newer and younger educators who've often been bypassed for positions. Tina Trajani, Global News. Well, as you might have expected, there's been some pushback to that. The Elementary Teachers uh, Union have filed a complaint with the Labor Board over the uh, Ford government's uh, decision to scrap this controversial hiring rule. Well, controversial in their mind, anyway. Uh, Craig Smith is uh, with the Thames Valley uh, Board. He is, of course, uh, the local president for the Elementary School Teachers Federation in that district, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us uh, some uh, update on exactly what's going to be going on. Craig, great to have you on the program again. Uh, talk to us about the concern that you had, and, and I'm sure that uh, this has been going on ever since the minister made this announcement. Yeah, there's. Uh, thank you for uh, having me as well. By, by the way, it's nice to be with you again. The the issue, I think, is there's a couple of parts to this. The first is this was an item that was discussed uh, during bargaining, and um, you know there was no a conversation at that point about revocation of uh, Regulation 274 during the life of the collective agreements that were duly negotiated and ratified. So the the basis of the complaint. Uh, to the Labor Relations Board is unfair uh, labor practice and is unfair bargaining. We just don't, we don't do things that way in collective bargaining. You just don't get to change things arbitrarily. So that's the, the genesis or the, the nub of the uh, complaint to the Labor Relations Board. I think the other piece of this is that the fair hiring uh, regulation, which is known as 274, has been in place for a number of years and contrary to what the minister says, in fact, is designed to create fairness and uh, and and promote diversity in hiring by centralizing that process of hiring using something that is common in the union movement which is seniority which means that teachers are coming to these uh, potential vacancies with experience and with qualifications um, and the other the other part of it is it, it should lend itself to taking it uh, into a more neutral place, which is which is hiring by the boards as opposed to individual uh, principals, which can lead to problems, um, and we've seen that in the past. This is why the regulation was brought in in the first place. So I think there the two the two key concerns there uh, hinge on each other. I I don't profess to be a. a, a an expert on, on contract negotiations or any of this stuff, but uh, I've covered enough of it over the years. Uh, so let me ask you a question. If this is something that had already been agreed upon and was in the, the settlement uh, with the ETFO in the province, are, are they allowed to arbitrarily say, well, we're taking that out now? Well, under Bill 195, they did make amendments to the Education Act and gave themselves, uh, the government gave themselves sort of sweeping powers to bypass uh, normal processes, uh, gave them the power to to change collective agreements. This was clearly opposed in the legislature. It isn't uh, particularly the way you want to proceed, particularly in the time of uh, the pandemic and, and the crisis that we're, we're looking at there. I, I mean, the other issue is uh, what the board, what the, what the government could have done uh, was declare a stoppel on that or to say, you know what, we're going to follow past practice. But that gives notice that we're going to talk about it in the next round of bargaining, which really isn't that far away. We're one year into this new collective agreement, so that's two years out. So they would have given notice. 
that that was an item they wanted to talk about, but they've chosen to uh, do something other and um, and create yet another problem in the education sector as we're all trying to deal with the the sort of context of, uh, of the, the pandemic and the emergency situation caused by COVID-19. Every time I hear this phrase, though, Craig, it, 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 maybe you can clarify this for me. They always say this controversial clause in the contract, uh, which is in the eye of the beholder, certainly. Uh, you've, you've just outlined why you and, and other members of, of the ETFO wanted to have that in there in the first place, because you figured there were uh, the, 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 you know, the playing field was tilted against some people in the, mm-hmm. the way things were before. Uh, the minister maintains that now it is because you've put this thing in here. Uh, it it's, it's just, just seems to me as if there doesn't seem to be any middle ground here. And, and I don't remember hearing any groundswell of concern about uh, anything about this, saying, well, this, this clause here. I mean, there are people that are simply critics of unions and don't like teachers' unions especially who are going to criticize almost out of this stuff. But was this a problem? Was this something you were hearing about from, from, from uh, you know, administration officials and the boards around the area that, uh, that this is really tying our hands as the minister seemed to, to characterize it? Well, the only person that seems to think it's a problem or a crisis is the Minister of Education. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that there was a groundswell of opposition to this. It's not some sort of uh, radical uh, left-field kind of idea. And I would suggest in Thames Valley, uh, the the occasional teacher collective agreement um, reflected the, this practice prior to the uh, the implementation of Regulation 274. So, in fact, uh, Reg 274 cons- confirms you know, practice that has existed, not just in, in this district, but in other districts. And uh, it was an attempt to kind of streamline and make more efficient the hiring process to ensure that the most qualified and experienced teachers get to where the kids need them. And from our perspective, that's kind of a benefit to student learning. So the, the idea that uh, this is a radical notion, I think, is, is, is not true, although the minister and, and his uh, friends and supporters may see it that way. But end of the day, it, it was proceeding quite well, and as I say, practice in this board uh, predated the regulation. So I'm not really sure, uh, apart from an ideological preference, why the minister is is picking this fight at this time. Well, let's talk about, as you mentioned, the next time, which is not too far into the future, when they're going to be at the beginning of contract negotiations once again between uh, between the ETFO and, and the, the provincial government. Uh, if they've yanked this away from you, what kind of a feeling are you going to have when you sit down to the bargaining table with these guys, figuring, well, what difference does it make what you say now? You can change your mind next week. Well, that that really is, you, know, you put your finger on it. I mean, that's the, that's a big concern because, you know, we expect to, as a party to bargaining, whether it's central or local, that both parties will bargain fairly, they'll follow the rules, and, you know, we'll, we'll proceed on that basis. And uh, I think that is a real big concern. I mean, this this is the latest in a number of, uh, of, of uh, positions and, 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 and actions that the government has taken. I think they are setting the stage for broader um, attacks, you know, on, on the rights, the collective rights that teachers have as members of their respective federations. So I do think it ca- it's a real cause for concern because it's not just a one-off. We think it is uh, perhaps part of uh, a broader, you know, broader agenda. And, and, and I think we need to just be, you know, really clear that, you know, we'll, we're going to continue to fight for fair and transparent hiring policies for educators and advocate for a much needed, much needed and broader uh, actions to address equity and diversity in public education. These are all things that are deeply embedded in our system now and are reflections of things that are already going on. So we'll continue to push uh, on this. We'll continue to fight them on this piece. But, you know, I think the appropriate place and the appropriate time to do this would be at the bargaining table in a couple of years. Well, and, and failing that, uh, if there is some critical situation, and I understand COVID-19 is a critical situation, I'm not certainly going to pl- downplay that, uh, but, but where they sit down and say, okay, we have to do something. But, you know, even <clears throat> back in the early 1990s when Bob Ray was the premier and we had a huge economic crisis, not just here in Ontario, but right across the country, as you may recall. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when that government decided to come up with unpaid days off, uh, called Ray Days. As, uh, that, that seemed to be the, the moniker that it grabbed onto. But I do know that Bob Ray at that time did consult with labor leaders before he made the announcement. Uh, so there was some consultation. Not everybody was happy about it, but he said, you know, do you want unpaid days off or how we just, we just start laying people off? So he, here's the situation. Here are the alternatives. Which one do you want to go with? And it was very unpopular, probably a contributing factor in him losing the next election. But there was consultation. I, I don't get the sense this time around, Craig, there was any consultation before the minister made the announcement. 
Yeah, not, they're not with you anyway. Yeah, no, there, there there was there was no consultation on this or just about anything else that the the government has proceeded with in the time that they've been in office. I mean, and that I think is the problem. I mean, you know, happy to have conversations to address problems in a real and meaningful way uh, that are fair and transparent. I mean, really, you know, the the, the minister's using fancy sort of progressive language to dress up a really draconian and arbitrary decisions. So consultation is the furthest thing from from what we've been experiencing. And I, I think that, that speaks to the attitude that the government has, not just to public education, but to public services in general and basically governance. And, and that's, uh, that's a big problem. If it's not us, it's going to be someone else. So uh, at some point. So no, there was no consultation unless you take, you know, this is what we're going to do. What do you think is consultation? Um, there was no meaningful discussion or negotiation. This really, I think, kind of came out of the blue. Craig Smith, of course, with the Thames Valley uh, Board and uh, the ETFO uh, local president for that. Uh, it's been filed. We'll see uh, just how the government's going to respond and, and what the, the Labor Board's going to do. But I'm sure we'll be talking more about this in the future, Craig. Thanks so much for the time today. You're very welcome, Bill. Take care. Take care. Craig Smith, of course, uh, with the update on what's happening with uh, the teacher's concern. And and by the way, I mean, it, you know, it's just piling on here with, with what's going on in the education system these days. Uh, and another story that is now gaining some traction is a, a story that the Toronto Star uh, broke a couple of days ago about the fact that some boards of education have given extra money, paid extra money, to administration officials. Uh, some principals, we're told, some maybe some vice principals, uh, and even some, uh, some, uh, some caretaking staff, some of the folks that look after the schools, because of the work that they did leading up to the school year to try to get everything ready for the plan as, as each board tried to roll it out. That's the explanation from the board. Uh, some critics, including some teachers' unions, are saying, no, that was bonusing. And in these days of, of very tight financial times, do the boards really have that kind of money? Well, I want to bring uh, somebody who was involved in the decision for the, the Hamilton Board. Alex Johnstone, of course, is the uh, trustee and also chair of the Hamilton Board of Education. And she joins us on the Bill Keller Show uh, to explain exactly what's going on. Alex, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could jump on with us today. Good morning, Bill. Maybe you could explain to our, to our listeners exactly what the rationale was with the, the board was talking about when you made this decision to, to compensate these uh, administration officials. So our principals and vice principals were called back to work one week early. Uh, they did lose a vacation time. And so whereas normally um, principals and vice principals can be paid out to, to a maximum of five days, that was increased up to 10 days in order to um, uh, cover for the vacation days that were lost, the one week of uh, vacations. So when we called these individuals back to work early, it was in order to prepare for school reopening. This was all provided to trustees in our August 24th report. It was a very detailed report um, and included the $750,000 that was used to provide coverage for recalling principals and vice principals back to work, as well as uh, those funds were also used to pay for individuals who were assembling um, and, and uh, distributing all of the PPE, as well as individuals who were assigned to um, take care of the database and uh, take care of all the glitches that uh, were being experienced through the database at that time. Um, also in that report, although not in that funding line, uh, was additional money paid for our, um, in order to have uh, additional uh, expenses for our cleaning and custodial staff who are working overtime, as well as in that report is details around how we delayed the uh, reopening of schools. So all of our educators um, did go back um, uh, at the time that they were supposed to, this uh, original start date. However, students were delayed returning to school, and that was to give our educators time to in order to prepare for reopening as all of the changes were coming so late from the Ministry of Education at that time. So it's a very detailed document and uh, details all of the additional funding that was needed in order to prepare for the safe reopening of our schools. 
Okay, but you understand the frustration that some people are going to feel here, uh, because as well, you were, and I had these discussions a, a lot in the late summer and into the September as the school year was starting to to roll out. Uh, your board and and just about every other board in the province of Ontario was basically saying, look, we're out of money. I mean, we've done everything we can. We you know we're we, we're you were asking the province for sufficient more funds actually because of all the work that had to be done to retrofit schools and some of the other work that had to be done to prepare for the plan that the government had implemented, uh, and we understood that and the province came back with a plan which you know allowed you to dip into reserves that's the history of this but with this story that, that the star broke the other day alex you can understand that people say well wait wait a second you guys were crying poor a minute ago where'd this money come from well i want to be clear that um none of this money is bonus money um as has been that's depicted. how it's been characterized um, by some so- people though Right. So I want to be clear that the money that was spent was to compensate individuals who were called back to work one week early. So these were individuals who lost uh, their their vacation time. We do have a finite amount of principals and vice principals. So unlike other pools where we can bring in supplies... Uh, individuals in order to reduce class sizes or to cover additional work. We are not able to do that um, to this anywhere to the same extent with our uh, principals and vice principals. There was a lot of work that was required for the safe reopening of schools. And so they were called back in for um, a week earlier than was uh, than is the normal standard. And we did need to compensate those individuals for the work that was performed. So let me ask you, was this part of their agreement? In other words, was there an expectation they were going to get this money? Or was this a board decision to simply say, look, you guys, you, you made a sacrifice for us. We want to compensate you. So our principals and vice principals do not have lieu time. Uh, with other collective agreements, uh, we are able to compensate individuals who are working overtime, or um, we are able to, for example, with our principals and vice principals, if they miss um, um, five days of vacation throughout the year, they are able to have those five days paid out. Um, however, with... Um, uh, with all of the work that was taking place over the summer um, for for principals and vice principals, that was going well above and beyond uh, the five days, especially where we called individuals back one week early. So this is compensation for time worked. So did they request this, though? I mean, did they say, okay, we're going to do this, but we want to be compensated? Or this was part of an agreement. In other words, this this was this was forged before this actually happened before they actually went back to work. They knew they were going to be compensated for time lost. Um, so with that, um, all of our, our HR team does work directly with all of our employee groups. Okay, so there was some discussion, some negotiation that went on, uh, and, and there was an agreed-upon idea here. Which, uh, By the way, Hamilton is not unique to this. I know the Toronto board uh, is, is getting some heat for this, too, and I'm sure there are other boards that uh, haven't really discussed this to any great extent. But this is, in, in your mind, then, this is a sense of fairness to the people that went back early to try to make sure they lost time off so they're going to be compensated for it. That, that's, that's the board's opinion? So this is compensation for time that was worked. Um, and that is where, so it, when you look at the August 24th report, there's a number of different um, um, items in there. Um, so there is, uh, that's where trustees received a report where they were informed that our principals and vice principals were being recalled back to work one week early. Also in that report is details around time that is being paid um, and uh, for additional caretaking staff to come in, clean our schools, ensure that our schools are clean. Um, Also in that report is details around delaying the reopening of our schools. Um, So our educators were given additional time uh, without students in our schools in order to prepare for the reopening and to have um, have, uh, to ease into the reopening uh, in order to support health and safety. So there was there was all kinds of accommodations um, and um, I guess all, um, things that were done outside of the norm um, uh, in the lead up 
to our I, I get that. I got, I got about 10 seconds, but mm-hmm. I just want to ask you, because of okay. your financial situation, which is very dire, and, and nobody's doubting that, did this money that you compensated the four come from reserves, or was there a pot of money set aside for no, it? No, it was not. Um, that This money is not from reserves. Uh, the, the $9 million from reserves went directly to reducing class sizes and nothing else. Alex, we're tight for time. I really appreciate you jumping in here on short notice to uh, try to add some clarification to this. Thanks so much for this. No problem. Bye now. Alex Johnson, the uh, chairman of the board for the Hamilton Board of Education. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The provincial government is expected later today to announce uh, new funding for long-term care facilities, for the care in those facilities. It's expected that uh, they're going to jack it up to about four hours per day of direct care for each and every one of residents in those facilities, uh, which is up a, a fair bit from where it is right now. Joining us to talk about this is a Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for uh, many, many years. Uh, Badger, thanks so much for the time. Are you surprised by this announcement? Well, I, not really. I mean, this is a, a recommended, and I think the government was wise or will be wise to implement it. But you know, Bill, it, I, I hate to sound like you know, uh, you know, one of those politicians that say, "Well, you know, this should have been done a long time ago." But in this case, it should have been done a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, it's gone from what uh, two point uh, seven five hours of direct care per day, and they're going to take it to four, which is a good thing. But I, I mean, you know, what has taken so long? for governments in this province to get to this point. On the topic of taking so long, uh, we're expecting that, yes, they're going to announce this today, so everybody's going to say, hallelujah, it's about time. Uh, They hope to have it achieved by 2024, which is of little use to the people that are in these facilities right now. Well, and, you know... And, and, it's, and I noticed that they said that they will have to hire thousands of, you know, folks to uh, help with this. But, again, how long? Like you say, 2024. So, yeah, it, it has does nothing to help the people in long-term care right now. And that's what we're worried about. The other element to this, too, and, and you've done a lot of research on this over the years, because this is not a new problem. I mean, the COVID you know, pandemic made it worse, but it was it was an ugly problem. There was understaffing. There was violence that was going on. I mean, both staff and, and uh, residents were getting injured because of some assaults that had taken place. Uh, there was a lot of concern about the level of care, uh, about people being overworked and underpaid. Uh, that doesn't seem to be addressed in any of this stuff, and those seem to be the key problems, which raises the question, with all the stuff that I just listed there, who would want to work there? And and I, that's not a, a shot at the people that do, because they're dedicated, they're doing the best they can under very, very trying circumstances. But this ties in, Badger, with what uh, the, the Premier mentioned a few weeks ago, about he wants to make more people you know, uh, want to be inclined to, to go and work in these facilities. Make it attractive for them. Uh, what have they done to do that? I mean, they, they said we're going to hire them. The money's not great. The working conditions in some of these facilities is awful. How are they going to attract people to come and work in that field? Well, that's the issue. You know, it's fine. It's all well and good to say we have to hire hundreds, thousands more people to assist in, in long-term care homes. But if you're paying them a little better than minimum wage, why would anybody bother? I mean... It's not easy work, you know, you know, having, you know, my mom was in a long-term care home, and boy, the people there who are doing their job and to the utmost are working hard to mm-hmm. look after these seniors. And why, why they do it for the money that they pay, you know, that's why you get these people working at two or three different long-term care homes just to make ends meet. So if you're going to do this, if you're going to make this better for you know, for the long-term care residents, you also have to make it better for the people who work there, and that means paying a decent wage. And I we don't see anything here that addresses that. Well, and there's the there's the facilities themselves, and I, I look at them being realistic here. I don't expect them to go announce that. Okay, now we're going to build a whole bunch of brand new facilities, state of the art stuff. I mean, that, that's that's going to cost a ton of money, but there need to be some retrofits. I mean, you've seen the condition of some of these buildings, and and they're old because they've been around for quite some time. And we're talking about the privately run facilities and the ones that are owned by the government. Okay. Uh, I, I know here in the Hamilton area, over the last 10 or 15 years, both McCass and Wentworth Lodge have undergone some renovations. Uh, 
I don't know how, how well they are as far as modern standards are concerned, but it's better than it was. Some other facilities, not so bad. I mean, you know, some of these old facilities, they've got outdated HVAC systems, uh, air, lousy air conditioning. Uh, you know, you've got sometimes you've got four residents to a room instead of one or two as the way it should be because they're overcrowded. Uh, where's where's the, 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 the commitment to do something about that, to make working conditions better for the people that are going to try, try to attract to this industry? Or where's the commitment to... Uh... To uh, bring greater restrictions on uh, retirement homes, yeah, because a lot of people, Bill, uh, a lot of seniors are kind of in a situation where they they, they they literally can't, you know, they, they they're waiting for a, a long term care bed, but they're in a rest home, but they need long term care type care, and these long term cares homes can't can't deal with that, uh, you know, that type of, you know, uh, intensive care. So it's just, it's just a, it's just a ball of mess, quite frankly. The the whole thing is just, you know, it should have been addressed a long time ago. And you know, we're really, uh, we're really reaping what we didn't. So I guess years ago. You guys did a piece uh, back in your day with the Toronto Star, and this goes back to the McGinty government. Uh, and I, I say I've, be, I've moved three or four times. It's in a box someplace, I'm sure, in a garage. Uh, but it was a, a, a multi-part series about what needed to be done. And you guys covered all the bases. You talked about salaries, of course, for staff. You talked about working conditions. Uh, you talked about doing things like uh, better home care, because not everybody who's in these facilities really needs to be, uh, but there's no other options for them. And you, you covered it all. It, it was I, I read this again. I thought, here is the, the here's the playbook. This is what the government needs to do. And here we are now, 2020, a number of years after that, uh, uh, and little to nothing of that stuff has been done. I mean, this is this is good. I don't. I'm I'm not going to say, hey, what they're going to announce today is, is is pitiful. It's not. It's needed, but it's one part of a huge, huge enterprise that they need to undertake here. Well, you know, I remember or certainly remember that series, and uh, it was it was extensive, and people at the time, you know, would be wringing their hands and or did wring their hands and say, you know, something has to be done. But nothing was done. And, and that's, that's the, I mean, that's the rob here. It's just, we're, we're, we're keep, we keep reinventing the wheel here. And I mean, going back years and years and years ago, Bill, that we knew these kind of problems existed. And, and nothing except nibbling around the edges was done and promises to build more long-term care beds that never came to fruition. We're really, I mean, it's really come to a crunch period here, particularly with COVID that has to be done. And hopefully, hopefully the government will move up that 2024, uh, you know, and, and make it and try to start implementing those changes now. Well, we had Andrea Horvath on the program late last week, of course, the opposition leader. And, uh, you know, the NDP, of course, are proposing privatizing the whole business, all long-term care facilities, which is not, you know, unexpected, of course, from the NDP. Uh, and that's not going to happen. We all know that's not going to happen, especially with this government. But at, at any time, it's not going to happen because the government really just doesn't have all the money to, they need to be able to do that. So the private sector steps in. And that's fine. You know, I, I don't have a problem with that. But there are some, some honest operators in the private sector, too, that, that operate some of these facilities. Some of them not so good. Some of them are, are dedicated, and, I, and that's, that's wonderful. But where is the oversight? I mean, since the Ford government came in uh, to power almost two years ago now, uh, they cut back on the inspections considerably. Uh, from uh, what was it, 300 and some odd to, to down like 12 or something the year before, just the last year. Uh, so, in other words, the bad operators are getting away with it because nobody's checking up on them. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the 12 or so that they did, they said we're on a complaint basis. So, in other words, the institution knows they're coming. Next Tuesday, they clean up their act for a day. I mean, it's not a very efficient system. No, well, I think what they should do is, you know, make, make these uh, long-term care homes uh, private and in public self-regulating. I know that will sound wrong for a lot of people. But you may, you know, and then oversee the self-regulating. I mean, if the government just doesn't have an endless pot of money to go around regulating or investigating everything. Of course not. There are, you know, make them self-regulate, make them inspect their own places, make them hire their own inspectors as a, as a group, 
to go around and check out these homes and the you know and the backup check will be the government to see that they're doing this because if the government doesn't want to commit a lot of money to investigating or to inspecting these homes then it should throw and, and make it the responsibilities of the homes themselves and maintaining the standards, but there yeah. has to be there has to be oversight. And, and again, I know I'm going to get emails on this. I, I get them all the time on this, but I mean it's got to be said. Uh, and I'm not suggesting everybody who's in the private sector are bad operators. They're not, uh, but there are some who are. And, and I mean we've seen this uh, in the Hamilton area. Look at some of the stories we've had in the local media now. But some of these operators of these care facilities, not long-term care necessarily, but some of these other care facilities, retirement homes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 god awful. I mean the sort of thing that goes on. Uh, and, and again, that comes down to lack of oversight. And if somebody is in non-compliance, uh, you got to do something about it. You can't just give them a slap on the wrist and say, "Okay, you've got six years to get your act together." Something. I mean, these are these. As I say, your mother was in one of these facilities. We've all had loved ones in these facilities at one time, and and it's 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 tragic to see the kind of conditions that some of them well, are giving in. Giving these people, these operators, a second, third, and fourth chance, not it shouldn't happen. Pull their ticket. You know, just say you can't operate in, 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 until you do all these things. You will, you know, will take your, you know, the, your residence out of wherever you are, and and you know, for a short term until you have all these things done. They, these, these are these are human beings. These are our moms, dads, uncles, aunts, and they're in there, and they shouldn't be treated like this. I mean, we in Canada. We have to start treating our seniors with the kind of respect that they do in countries elsewhere. Like, just, instead of just housing them. Yeah, exactly. Warehousing, which Warehouse. is what it is. You saw some of the comments from residents and families of residents uh, during the independent inquiry uh, that had gone on here in Ontario over the last couple of weeks. Uh, some of them were saying, you know what, we feel like those kids in the cages down on the Mexican border. Uh, that's that's the way we're treated. We're warehoused. You know, we get fed every once in a while. Uh, you know, we can ring the bell for a day and a half, and maybe somebody will respond because there's staffing shortages there. And it was horrific, the, the quality of the food. I mean, there's a long list of things. And, you know, this is, this is Canada, for God's sakes. I mean, you know, to know that this is going on. But the problem is it's out of sight, out of mind. If you don't have a, a loved one in one of these facilities, you're not, you're not paying attention. And, you know, but why, there's no, why change, Bill, when they've been getting away with it for so long? Yeah. I mean, it takes, it's going to take the government to take a firm hand here and say this, this kind of treatment will not continue any longer, and, the, and these homes will run the way they're supposed to. And, you know, and the residents will be treated the way they're supposed to. It has to change, Bill. You know, we've been talking about this for years, and I'm hoping, goodness, that, you know, that the time is here and that this government or whatever government actually does something about it rather than just talking about it. Improve the conditions, pay the, uh, pay the employees better, and you know, and they'll stay longer, and they'll and do a better job because they're not running from one uh, home to another just to keep you know food on the table. It it sounds simple, I know it's not, but the point is it has to be done. And and maybe this this maybe this is this a start, and maybe the government will will is serious about changing you know making changes where necessary i i we i mean there isn't anybody out there that doesn't hope that this is you know that this doesn't improve exactly and there's nobody out there that's going to say you're spending too much money on long-term care but this this gives you an example of how slowly government moves okay uh this uh, this announcement they're going to make later on today the staffing study they're going to make to bump it up to four hours per day per per resident which is fabulous this is actually the result of the inquiry in, into the elizabeth wet flower situation where she was responsible for killing eight residents over nine years with the lethal injections in a facility uh in the woodstock area that's how long ago it's taken them that long to react to that report they this is not even dealing with the COVID situation they're not there yet i mean you know is is there a way that governments could actually just kind of ramp it up a little bit and maybe be a little more current with some of their policies? 
Phil, when they want to, I know, you know, it's the old Queen Mary thing, you're, you're trying to turn around the Queen yeah, Mary, I but that, the point yeah. is, I have seen governments, personally, federally, provincially, move quickly on something, and it can happen, and it has to happen. It, there's no reason for this to be dragged out. We know what the situation is, we know what the problems are, deal with them. And I, I've seen governments make decisions and, and with the support of the opposition, make them right there on the spot to the betterment of, you know, whoever it was at the time. Well, the announcement's coming up later on today. We'll see what kind of uh, meat they put on the bones here and see just how effective it's going to be. As always, Richard, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again. Stay well. Thanks, Bill. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, who covered Queen's Park for many years for the uh, Toronto Star. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is going to be with us for a long time, not just days, not just weeks, and even when there is a vaccination, uh, the possibility of the impact of COVID uh, is very, very strong, That it's going to have an impact for quite some time to come. So what do we do for the people that have been disadvantaged by that? Well, you know, they've tried to come up with programs. The federal government, of course, had the uh, CERB program, which was supposed to be a, 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 an income supplement for people that have been adversely affected. And uh, you can argue well, how effective it was. I think it was what we needed to do at the time. Uh, but there's money there. And uh, what advocates now, some advocates are suggesting is, is that uh, some of that money should actually be invested into social welfare programs. In other words, uh, doled back to the provinces so that they can use these for some of the social welfare programs of, again, people that are being adversely affected by this. It's not a new idea, but uh, the fact that some folks are talking about it now might just put some wind in the sails of it. Tom Cooper is the director for the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Tom, great to have you with us again. Hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, I'm doing well. I think just like everybody else, Bill, a little bit anxious about what's going to happen tomorrow night south of the border, but uh, yeah, no kidding. Ho- hoping for the best. We all are. We all are. This is an interesting concept, Tom. Now, this is uh, very much in tune with uh, a number of uh, discussions you and I have had over the years about about helping people that are, are down and out and need a hand up, not a hand out. Uh, we had the basic income pilot project here in the province a couple of years ago, and, of course, the Ford government killed that when they got elected. Uh, but as you, I'm sure, are aware, at the uh, Chamber of Commerce, the National Chamber of Commerce Convention, uh, last week, which was done virtually, of course, because of COVID, uh, they accepted a motion from the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce urging the federal government uh, to start a basic income pilot project. And obviously, they love Hamilton to be part of it. So this idea about using CERB money to try to fund that uh, is an interesting and very innovative way to try to approach this. Yeah, I think so, Bill. And it's outstanding leadership from uh, Keenan Loomis and the entire team at the uh, at the chamber including uh, Bianca uh, Caramento, uh, who helped lead that, uh, that initiative. I think um, having the business community come out and talk about just how important it is for people to have a stable income, to be able to stabilize their lives, to make sure they're, they're living in safe housing, uh, they're getting enough to eat, and, and they're able to pursue opportunities, is something the federal government won't be able to ignore. So to have their voice at the table uh, talking about the importance of basic income, I think is just fantastic. And as, as you talked about uh, with Keenan on Friday, um, we had uh, the pilot cut short, uh, sadly, because of the provincial government. Uh, we didn't get all the data we would have liked to, but, but McMaster University stepped out. Dr. Wayne Luchek uh, and, and his team interviewed hundreds of former participants, and, and to a person, they found the basic income really improved their lives, uh, enabled them to um, look for work, uh, go back to school, uh, build up their, their skills, um, to, to find better jobs. And, uh, and, and so I, I think it really is the way of the future. But as, as, as you sort of alluded to, um, the federal government really needs to be the one to pick up the, uh, the ball on this, uh, because we know the, the provincial government has, has in essence already rejected the idea. But we know the provincial government does have uh, some savings uh, as a result of the uh, important programs that were put in place in the first days of the pandemic, like CERB, uh, the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit, to, to keep people healthy and, and safe. Um, people were provided with uh, $2,000 a month. And, and that that amount is, is pretty reasonable, I think, in terms of enabling people to meet their basic needs. But 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 as as you said, not everybody was eligible, um, and it's 
those folks who, who weren't able to access CERB that I really worry about and continue to worry about, it's people on Ontario Works, people on the Ontario Disability Support Program, who continue uh, to live in the deepest poverty in society. They were experiencing poverty long before the pandemic, and uh, things only got worse for them once the pandemic hit, because, of course, there are extraordinary costs to, to keeping us healthy and safe. Um, but uh, often uh, food prices were skyrocketing. So people simply on, on, if you're a single person on Ontario Works, you get $733 a month to live on. There's no way you can meet rent and, and purchase food for that amount. And, and so the numbers simply don't add up and they never have. We talk about stress levels, and now there's a study done by the Calgary Counseling Centre, which I think actually served as a catalyst for this discussion. Uh, and they found that while the CERB benefit was going out, actually the low-income people uh, had no uh, drop in distress levels. In other words, they, they felt, oh, my God, there's no safety net here. All of a sudden they had one, and they were able to cope. They were able to pay the rent. They were able to get some groceries. They were able to do some things. Uh, but as you say, not everybody qualifies for this, so there are still some people that are in distress as a result of this. And uh, the government, the federal government, that is, has made a commitment to this. Uh, I find it interesting that, uh, you know, when this whole idea of a, of a, a, a guaranteed income was uh, and initially started, one of the major pushbacks was from small businesses saying, we can't afford this. You know, mm-hmm. we just can't afford, you know, we can't. This is going to put us out of business. Now the Chamber of Commerce, which is, represents small business, are one of the leading advocates, not just the Hamilton Chamber, but the Canadian Chamber of Commerce are urging the federal government, this is part of the solution. It's, n- it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve everything, but it's part of the solution. Oh, absolutely. And basic income uh, can't be taken in isolation. We, we certainly need uh, affordable housing initiatives in society. We need to ensure everybody can buy medication to... Uh, for parents uh, to be able to afford childcare. Um, but basic income does provide a financial foundation for people to meet their basic needs and, and to be able to move forward with their lives. And, and I think certainly the Hamilton Chamber has, has been very progressive on a number of fronts. They were the uh, first chamber in all of Canada to adopt a living wage policy for their own employees. Um, and now they've stepped up stepped up on uh, basic income as well, along with the Thunder Bay Chamber of Commerce. And they uh, convinced their colleagues right across the country that testing this idea was the good uh, approach. And they have tens of thousands of businesses they represent right across the country. It's a call the federal government simply can't ignore. And they need to recognize that uh, basic income can be good for business. Well, because when people have money in their pockets, that's money that's spent locally in communities on goods and services. It's helping to drive local economic growth, and it's also helping to create jobs. And some of those jobs are going to be entrepreneurial jobs, people starting their own businesses. And and Keenan saw that firsthand in Hamilton uh, with uh, many of the uh, former pilot participants who started their own business. We saw the same thing in Lindsay in Thunder Bay, where it was also piloted. And, and, and so I think it's, it's really the way of the future. Um, but in the meantime, until the federal government really steps out on basic income, uh, we know the provincial government has an absolute responsibility to protect the people living in the deepest poverty in society, those people on uh, Ontario Works and on Ontario Disability Support Program, the single person on Ontario Works who's getting $733 a month to live on simply can't do it. When when average rents in Hamilton, as, as reported by Global uh, News, is in the range of twelve to $1,400 a month, um, getting $733 uh, in, in social assistance benefits uh, it just places you in an impossible situation. You're, you're living in an unsafe in, in dangerous situations, and, and that's why we're seeing such a growth of, of tent communities, because people simply can't afford rent. There's an interesting quote, I, I, the, the story that, uh, that brought this to my attention over the weekend. Uh, Lee Stevens is a policy and research specialist uh, in Calgary. And uh, the suggestion was, is do we really need this basic income project? Because eventually there's going to be a vaccine and we'll get back to normal. And she 
protest. She says, we don't want to go back to normal. Normal is what got us here. Normal is what caused the inequity. Normal is what put people out on the street. Uh, we have an opportunity to change that now. And, and maybe COVID was the catalyst for that, fine. But, you know, we've got to look at this and simply say this is not a short-term problem. It needs a long-term solution. Yeah, exactly. And and the catchphrase, I think, uh, for many of us moving forward is building back better. And, and, and I think you're absolutely right. We need to look at new ways of, of supporting people and supporting ourselves and, and giving opportunities to people who simply didn't have them in the past. And we know COVID-19 has hit uh, particular communities hardest, uh, racialized communities, low-income communities, certainly frontline workers who are earning the least in society have been hit the hardest um, by, by this pandemic. And, and so we need to be ensuring that they're earning livable wages, that they're able to go home and provide basic needs for themselves and their families, uh, purchasing medicine. Um, I, I think a, a national pharmacare plan needs to be part of it. We need a national child care plan. Um, but a basic income can provide the stabilization and the, and the foundation for people to move forward with their lives. Um, so that they do have opportunities, so that they can stay safe and healthy. And, and well, we're hopeful uh, vaccines are, are just around the corner. You're absolutely right. We're, we're months, uh, if we're lucky, away from uh, going back to normal. Um, and, and certainly a lot, of, uh, a lot of experts would say we're not going to get there uh, even in 2021, maybe in 2022. And, and so that is you know, another 24 months possibly of, of instability, of, of economic uh, calamity uh, for, for small businesses and larger businesses. Uh, we need to be able to stabilize people's lives so we can stabilize the economy and, and uh, get, uh, get Canadian business and, and consumerism going again. But most importantly, be able to ensure people can meet their basic needs. Well, let's play math here, if we could, for a second, which is not my strong suit. People listening to the show know that. But, I mean, I look at numbers here. Uh, there were a number of people right across the country, but we'll deal with Ontario specifically here, a number of people on social assistance for a number of different reasons uh, over the last little while, and, and which is one of the reasons why the, the previous government here in Ontario uh, decided to try this pilot project. But we saw with the CERB program, which was actually a, a, a cousin to, to basic income, uh, that's all that was, was a top-up program. All these people, that meant, most of them anyway, that were on social assistance gravitated to the CERB program, uh, which took uh, an awful lot of the problem uh, away from provincial taxes because, I mean, those government programs, the assistance programs for people that are below the poverty level are funded through our, ta- our taxes. And I know there's only one taxpayer, I get that. Mm-hmm. But these are people, if they're on disability support, that's one thing. But if they're on support because of their, they're below the poverty level, as you know, Tom, every nickel of the money that they get goes towards rent or food if they can afford both. Under the CERB program uh, or under the uh, Guaranteed Income program, they got a few extra bucks, and they're going to go yeah. buy furniture. They're going to go buy something else. I mean, they spend that money locally. You could say they don't put it in offshore accounts. Uh, you know, they, they don't hoard it, for God's sake, so they, they spend it. And that's yeah. good for the local businesses and the local economy. So, it's uh, yes, there's going to be initial cost, but there's also a benefit to the rest of the community because that money flows right back into the community. Yeah, and, and, and that was certainly true for, uh, there's a lot of people on social assistance who do have uh, what we call earned income. So, so people who are maybe working uh, a small number of hours, uh, they may have disabilities or, or they may just not be able to get uh get work um but they were they are able to uh to work maybe 10 12 uh hours a week at minimum wage uh but that's certainly nowhere uh enough to to get them above the poverty line so those individuals uh were able to um get serb uh in many cases uh but the people who were not working who didn't lose income uh from uh, the pandemic, who were who were on provincial social assistance programs, weren't eligible for CERB, um, and and so we really had a two-tiered uh, type of situation, where we had uh, a number of people who were experiencing poverty suddenly jump up to two thousand dollars a month, uh, and, and you're absolutely right, their stress levels went down, they were able to stay healthier, they were able to pay their rent, uh, uh, purchase food. Um, 
but uh, a large number of other people on social assistance simply weren't allowed uh, to to apply for CERB because they weren't eligible. And, and, and so, in a sense, it was an interesting experiment in its own right because uh, we were able to see the impact uh, of those who were uh, receiving $2,000 a month versus uh, people on, on basic social assistance who were getting just a little bit over $700 a month. And, and, and certainly the impact of COVID on that cohort uh, that was earning the least uh, was much more profound. Um, well, there's, we there's know, another element I, to this, I, too. I mean, because when the, the pilot project was underway, I know that you brought a few of the folks that you knew that were in the program uh, onto the program, and we talked to them, and uh, and they talked about how the the program, this is the basic income program, how it had a positive impact on them. Uh, a number of them went back to school uh, mm-hmm. or, or went to retraining courses, so ultimately so that they could, you know, in, improve their employment status or in their employment opportunities with the ultimate goal of getting off CERB altogether because they're going to make more money in whatever job that they're going to find. So, I mean, th- there was some forward thinking that was going on here. They were, because uh, I know the characterization, some people said, oh, you pay money to sit on their duff and stay home. They weren't. Uh, they were looking forward to getting out of this altogether, but this was the, this, this, this was the hand up for them. Oh, absolutely. And the, uh, the report that McMaster University did, uh, absolutely demonstrated that, uh, that people, uh, were looking, uh, for jobs. They were getting better jobs. They were returning to, um, uh, to school, uh, to upgrade their skills and training. And, um, I, I, I think, sure, there were some people who, um, weren't able to work, but maybe they were in, in interesting situations where they were caring for a family member who was ill or a, a disabled child, and a number of uh, participants I knew were in that situation. Um, but for the first time, uh, they were able to, uh, you know, meet their basic needs, uh, cover their rent, and, and, and realize that stability that basic income provided. Uh, so it's absolutely um, false to indicate um, that, uh, that basic income made people lazy. I think, you know, if there's any lesson from the last, six or eight months it's that most of us get stir crazy after being home for too long you know we want to be out there in the community we want to be contributing we want to uh be able to interact and and better our society and and people experiencing poverty are are absolutely the same way they want um to do it in a safe way though and unless you provide unless the government the provincial government particularly provides the atmosphere uh, where frontline workers, particularly the lowest paid frontline workers, can interact in a safe way, um, you know, people are going to choose their health uh, uh, before going back to work uh, unless they don't have a choice, unless they have to, um, you know, put food on the table for their family. And, and then it makes it an impossible choice. Um, so I think basic income provides that stability and that foundation, but it's also incumbent on governments to make workplaces much more safe. Well, I, I don't know what the time frame is here. I know that the uh, federal government's going to give an economic update, but there's, there's usually no strings attached and usually no big policy announcements. So it may well be into the new year, uh, early in the new year, when they finally come up with a quote-unquote budget. But I'd like to think that there's going to be some discussion about this. And the fact that uh, some of this is actually coming from Alberta and, of course, from Ontario uh, might just be the catalyst for this. We'll certainly follow this story. Tom, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great having you back on the program today. Take care. Thanks, Bill. Bye. Tom Cooper, the director for the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Uh, and the Hamilton Chamber and the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, by the way, are also going to be lobbying the federal government uh, to look at this basic income project. And like you say, the money from CERB may actually well be uh, the, the one of the sources anyway to try to fund something like that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.